Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, we have Ethan Chatagne on the show. He is the author of Singer Distance, the novel that came out in the fall and the focus of this conversation, as well as Warnings from the Future, a story collection that came out in 2018. His short fiction has appeared in a variety of literary journals and has won Pushcart Prize as well as being listed as a notable in the Best American Short Stories and the Million Writers Award. He is a graduate of Fresno State, where he won the Larry Levis Prize in Poetry, and of Emerson College, where he earned an MA in Publishing and Writing. He lives in Fresno, California, with his family. Please enjoy our wonderful conversation. Culture, art, music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. All right. So, Ethan, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Mostly places kind of around where I live, which is in the Bullard High area. One of the places I'd like to give a shout out to is uh, Little Leaf Bar. You know, it's, Little Leaf is this tea house that's. Oh um, yeah, I've seen that. It's like in a strip mall on the corner right there. Yeah, it's on the corner of uh, Palm and Bullard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they uh, and actually now what used to be just the tea shop is just became a cup of joy. So now there's a coffee shop there. But a few years back, the owner. He, he started leasing the, the next door space and turning it into a bar that had like a, a kitchen after hours at five. So it does like tea infused cocktails and they've got a, a pretty good menu. They've got these kimchi fries that I love. So I'll get a craving for the kimchi fries and go over kimchi there. Kimchi fries. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, it's, it's French fries topped with kimchi and like a, like a kimchi infusion sauce or something like that. Uh, they were really good. I'm, I'm blown away. I have not heard of this. I mean, I, I guess I just, when I drove by it, drive by it, I just assume that it's just like a place where you go get tea and maybe some light pastries or something. That's, that's amazing. What's a tea infused cocktail? What is that? I, I don't know if I can explain it. Well, they uh, just, they take some kind of a, a regular cocktail and they put a spin on it with some like flavored teas. Cause that's was the big thing for when it was just the tea shop. It would be like, you know, you go there and you get a nice tea, like a teaser sort of thing. And so it's kind of like those flavored teas mixed with, in with a cocktail. And they've got a regular bar menu and everything, too. And it's a kind of a small, intimate place. There's probably like four or five tables. You know, you'd probably max out maybe 20 or 30 people in there. But it's not too loud. You know, it's not there's not music so loud that you can't talk. Uh, it's kind of a, a nice, simple little space that I like a lot. Yeah, I think the structure of some of these places that are sitting side or like some places that are sitting in like strip malls, it like yeah. does them a disservice because you just you kind of look at the strip mall and you have an idea of a strip mall and then you carry that association to the restaurant that's just occupying a space. Yeah. So I and you know, I think in big cities, just because things are along like an area like a mixed use area with yeah. apartments above, you know, you kind of have a different vibe. And so people kind of have this disgust for strip malls in some ways that hurts restaurants. And I think, I don't think it's fair. Yeah. And they want to head to the, you know, the central places, river park, fig garden village, that kind of stuff. But there's lots you can find that that's outside of there. And I, I hope little leaf still, still gets that attention, especially because they used to have the spot like right on the corner. So they had the signage that's on the corner that you can see. And now that's a, the cup of joy sign. And they're like in the middle of that little building. 
but that that's kind of why I like to tell people, you know, hey, go go check out this place; it's good. Yeah, Cup of Joy doesn't need any more signage. I, 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 I we we'll get to overrated and underrated section, but I'm I'm definitely a coffee snob and definitely think Cup of Joy is slightly overrated. Sorry, Cup of Joy, uh, <laughs> you do make decent coffee, but not that great. So let's uh, let's talk about space and math. Two fascinating things that come up in your book quite a bit. How did you find the balance between like an emotionally driven plot? Um, and then getting into the weeds with mathematical proofs and scientific concepts. You know, that's something that's sometimes uh, writers have a hard time trying to find a balance between those two. How did you find that balance? For me, it started with the emotional story. Like that was the the part of the idea that compelled me. Like when I had the and the seed of the idea was not just what if there was a civilization on Mars, which is about as close as a civilization could be in the universe, but what if it was right next door, but wasn't really interested in us. Like we are are blown away and fascinated by the civilization on Mars and they just don't care about Earth. And I thought that was, it felt like thematically resonant with the way people have interpersonal relationships with, with each other and the way like people in a relationship can be very physically close, but their emotional distance can can be all over the place. Or, uh, you know, one person can be like turned away from the other person. So I thought that was a good way to explore that idea of, you know, physical proximity with the person not being the same as emotional proximity, mm-hmm. and how that can be, yeah, you know, can be filled with longing, loneliness. It, it can be. It's a complex thing because the two affect each other, physical proximity and emotional proximity, but they're not the same. And so I wanted to explore like what the variability can be in those relationships. And that was kind of how, when I started to, when I figured out that the action the characters needed to be doing was solving a mathematical proof from Mars to try and prove their worth, that's how the kind of questionable aspect of that map became about distance and this idea that we don't understand distance the way we think we do. We think it's very simple in the book. It's very complex and only one person in the world really understands how it works. And I wanted that to mirror this idea of varying emotional distances throughout the book. You know, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm someone that's been practicing meditation for a long time. And one, one concept that I think about a lot is, um, and I recently uh, listened to this great talk that Sam Harris did about this, where essentially, if you think about your visual space, your visual space is created by your consciousness in the same way that your thoughts are created by your consciousness. And so it's all just one fluid whole in your mind. And so we're such visual creatures that like seeing someone in a room means they're in the room, but everything's being created by our consciousness. So this idea of distance is, is, a, is a mind concept as well. And that kind of hits at your point, which is like distance is relative in some ways. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah I think so. And I think, I think that kind of hits upon one of the directions that the book goes in about distance, which is the idea that for some characters, they can't control the emotional distance that other characters, other people have from them, but they can control, at least to an extent, their perspective toward that distance. They can control their reaction to it, which doesn't mean that they can solve everything or make everything go their way, but that they maybe have to adjust uh, 
to to what other characters are giving them or not giving them. Mm. Do you think you could have written the same book if you were a mathematician or a physicist by training? Or do you think that lack of formal training enabled you to write a book with more mystery and kind of an element of magic to it? That's a great question. And I think that that's absolutely right. That I, you know, as, as someone who's not a mathematician and who doesn't really understand math and high level astronomy or anything, but I, I watch the documentaries and, you know, read some of the books that are written for public consumption that that allows you to view things like relativity and quantum mechanics with a sort of mysticism because you don't necessarily you're not in the nitty-gritty of interpreting experimental data and all that stuff and so it seems kind of like magic when you hear about you know aspects of relativity where you go close to the speed of light and you start aging slower you experience time slower that sounds like like magic it sounds like something that was like invented for a book and and so being able to view the mathematics in that way i think does let it feel more poetic and i feel like probably some actual mathematicians would be like this guy's looking at math in a pretty artsy fartsy way <laughs> um but but, but like you said that wasn't your objective it. as your wasn't objective was to elucidate mathematical proofs but to tell an emotional story that took place within the context of a, a couple that was adept in science and math. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's let's jump into genre a little bit because your because your book kind of uh, touches in different genres. Personally, do you prefer hard or soft science fiction? I don't know if I have a preference for either. It kind of depends on what I'm looking for at the moment. Depends how it's done. You know, sometimes I I love a really kind of hard science fiction, something very thoughtful, something that's really trying to to stick within the limits of physics and science as well as it can. So I got Ted Chang. I don't know if you, have you read any Ted Chang? Oh, I love Ted Chang. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he'll he'll and, come up again soon. Yeah. He's, he's mostly a very like hard science fiction writer where you can read on it and things really comport well with how science actually works, even if he takes a little bit of a leap with it. And, and so I love that. Um, then on the other end of the spectrum, I'm thinking of something like, this is how you lose the time war. Have you, do you, I don't know if you know that one. But it's that one is basically about these two like time agents who are from warring factions, but they have a correspondence that becomes like a romance. And that one's, I, you know, it's not hard science fiction at all. It's very poetic and branches in poetic directions, but it's just, it's well done. So I think it's all about the execution which which uh flavor would you say you're closer to in my own writing or in what i in, like in your in, in in the book probably more the harder science fiction though my i think my impulse is different in that i i like sort of a more realistic world but i also am trying to use that to aim it in a little bit of a literary or emotion centric or character centric direction mm. and it feels like feels like the science fiction world is so complicated to outsiders because there's so you know there's these hierarchies you know we don't I, i'm not as familiar i you know i don't sit around waiting to see who's going to win the hugo award every year and you know some of the books you get into them and they're just it's tough sledding and i that's why one of the things i appreciate about your book is that sometimes you get into science fiction and I, I'm not genre casting you in any ways, but just to say like, when you get a book about science and math, sometimes uh, the writer in order to cull his readers 
or her readers will just throw a bunch of stuff at you to kind of almost intimidate you. And I think that's kind of like a not gatekeeping, but something that science fiction does to kind of create its own separate turf is like, you have to be willing to wade through, you know, like when I read Cryptonomicon, you know, I had to kind of wade through Neil Stevenson's, you know, <laughs> incredible detail that I loved, but you know, it, it was a challenge in some ways. Yeah. I love, I love that kind of stuff. I like Neil Stevenson. He, he can be a bit showy in that way sometimes, which is part of the fun sometimes. And then part of sometimes it's a speed bump. I came I came to writing the sci-fi book from more of a literary direction. I've always thought of myself as a literary writer, though I like diverging from reality in it a little bit. I like a sort of a high concept premise that that changes the world and makes you that tries to change the world in a way that reveals it. Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro is kind of a favorite, and he does that often. But yeah, I, I certainly didn't want to bog people down with the mathematical particulars and it's helpful that I don't really know the math at any level beyond what's in the book and I kind of name check a lot of things like there's a reference in the book to conic sections which are slices of cones it's a field of mathematics that uh, has to do with the orbit of orbits of planets because they're they're similar and that's as much as I know about it and that's that's what I put in the book so it's enough to give the flavor of like okay here's here's some math, here's something a mathematician would be thinking about. But a lot of the time in the book, I get to do it through the through the format of characters trying to teach one another. Or there's a, there's a kind of a Carl Sagan-like character in there who's on radio shows and on night shows talking about science and talking to the general public about it. So trying to do that thing of making analogies that help kind of someone just watching in their living room understands something that's complicated. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about speculative fiction. So we're kind of in this flex point where some ideas that were considered science fiction are becoming reality. Um, so at some point, does science fiction just become fiction as things start to emerge? I don't think so. I mean, I think that part of the genre is that it always runs ahead of of where things are. That's one of the the core directions of the genre. And you know, Singer Distance is set in the past, so it's not really reaching into anything futuristic. But most sci-fi books will be anticipating the future of something or other, you know, the future of artificial intelligence or space exploration or that kind of thing. And I think wherever we are, people are going to be casting their imaginations forth. And sometimes it's out of worry. You know, you see a lot of climate fiction right now mm -hmm. with, you know, books set 20 or 30 or 100 years in the future and people are dealing with uh, the impacts of climate change. But also, you know, people are, as, as machine learning improves and kind of becomes more present in everyday life, a lot of people are, are you know, thinking about what that's going to look like. 20, 30, 40 years in the future. Um, and, you know, what are the hopes regarding that? What are the worries regarding that? And I think as long as we're hoping about the future and worrying about the future, that sci-fi is still going to be running ahead of whatever the current trends are. Where do you situate your novel in kind of this long history of framing people's interest in the expectations of what interactions with extra extraterrestrials will be like? Um, where do you situate your story in kind of the 
the conversation because it's an ongoing conversation. We can go back to H.G. Wells or, you know, however far we want to go back. Uh, where where do you situate your book? What's what is your book's interpretation of how that will go? In a lot of ways, it's a reaction to the science fiction that came before, you know, the the, the body of science fiction that's about meeting extraterrestrials as much as it is about that idea of meeting extraterrestrials itself. Uh, you know, if you watch watch or read a lot of sci-fi, you can kind of find some categories. The biggest one is probably like a Mars attacks type category where aliens come to Earth and try to destroy us and we have to fight them. So you've got Mars attacks, you've got Independence Day, you've got Battlestar Galactica, you've got, you know, dozens and dozens or hundreds of, you know, interstellar war type stories. And then you have other ones that are more about you know, aliens reaching out to be some kind of a guiding hand again like in 2001 space odyssey and in contact and things like that where we get contacted by a more advanced alien civilization you've got sort of ones that are mirroring diplomacy you know like star trek type worlds where you've got a lot of different species in in the galaxy trying to relate and coexist with one another you have a few examples, I think, in the last decade or two of stories that kind of flip the alien invader theory where uh, where you've got aliens that arrive at Earth and it's less about how they treat us than about how we treat them. So like a, a movie like District 9 where aliens show up and we put them in a refugee camp and, and treat them horribly uh, is is a real flip on that defending yourself against conquerors idea. And there's a short story from Brenda Peinado's recent collection that has a, a similar perspective. And I feel like these are all mirrors of actually, you know, how we interact with humans, right? Like if we meet a foreign civilization, we might worry that they're going to conquer us. And then some people are now starting to say, we meet a foreign civilization. What are we going to do to them? How are we going to treat them? And so I wanted to kind of lean into that idea of the way we visualize, the way we conceptualize meeting, meeting aliens has a lot to do with how we interact with other people and our hopes for meeting other people, new people, new kinds of people, and our fears about that. And I wanted to, to use that to explore this very personal level of like, okay, we we meet other people. We we have hopes about meeting extraterrestrials. What if we flip the usual script and instead of having a conflict with them, we just struggle to have have an interaction, struggle to have a relationship with them? Time and space are one of those are those two concepts that we've discovered are relative. Going back to Einstein, but I think you might suggest they also could be an illusion. Um, who are some novelists today that are doing interesting things with time? I think there's been kind of a, a boom in books that jump around and try to connect different time periods. Cloud One Atlas of those, or something, you know. Yeah, you know, exactly. You know. I feel like after Cloud Atlas, and especially after the movie Cloud Atlas came out, I got a lot of people trying to do that same structural thing of how do we connect like three or four or five different time periods. Uh, there's an Emily St. John Mandel book from earlier in this year called Sea of Tranquility, where she does that jumping around from basically the like um, early colonial Canada 
and to modern day to uh, I, I don't remember exactly, but like yeah, 100 like a hundred years in the future or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a moon colony, like four hundred years in the future, uh, and she she said she wanted to set up something structurally like Cloud Atlas, like that. And I love that book a lot. Matt Bell's Appleseed uh, from I think I think it came out last year uh, connects uh, like the the Johnny Appleseed time period in America, but it has Johnny Appleseed as a fawn. Uh, so he's like a mythical creature whose purpose is about taming the land, and then to a near future you know, world struggling against climate collapse, and then a like far future, you don't even know when it is, where this kind of strange creature is exploring glaciated earth. Uh, so that that book, I think, does it really well. There's not as much time jumping, but another sci-fi book that kind of does this is uh, How High We Go in the Dark by Sequoia Nagamatsu earlier this year. And that is also one of those things that's exploring exploring a plague in the future, exploring climate impacts in the future, and just basically how humanity survives and how humanity grieves as you get uh, get into the coming decades. Yeah, and in all these books, it's it's a lot of jumping, like you said, but is that is that all that creative in terms of how we think about time? I mean, because jumping between periods and showing connections is one thing, but like, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that could be fleshed out in terms of how we see time. What would you say your, how you define time in the context of Singer Distance? I'd say probably the closest connection to time and Singer Distance is its discussion of entropy, which kind of comes about more in the second half of the book uh, as the entropy equation becomes more important than the distance equation. And which is basically the idea that things get less organized and um, to put kind of a, a humanistic spin on it, things fall apart over time and that's the direction that things go. And that's that's sort of where the middle of the book finds Rick is that you know, he, he doesn't have the life he hoped for. It feels like his life is just kind of consistently falling apart and losing energy and stagnating. And there's kind of the question of, can you combat that? You know, can you keep life from from going still and deteriorating as time goes on which you know according to the laws of, of physics you cannot according to the book maybe i might be getting into spoiler territory if i if i go too far with that yeah uh, well, let's not let's not go too far with that but, yeah. but let let's jump to the other concept which is space you know there's space and time yeah. um wh- how would you how how does your book situate our concept of space i would say you know, it wants to complicate the idea of of space and distance as being a measurable and immutable thing. Right? Where um, you know we think of you know distance as being this clearly measurable thing. You know, I, you know, you measure ten feet and it's ten feet. And in in the world of the book, that's not necessarily the case, and it, it's hard for for the characters to wrap their minds around how it's hard for earth mathematicians to um, to explain how. I think one of the examples from the book that speaks to this is when the Lucas Holiday character is talking with the radio host about this seeming paradox. And he's saying like, like I could reach, reach out across the table and clap you on the shoulder. And, and we're right here talking to one another. But according to this, this mathematical equation from the Martians, 
we are also, you know, very distant from each other in, in an immeasurable way. And I, I think that's kind of the truth of a lot of human relationships is that there are always ways that we are close to people and distant from them at the same time. I think even when, when it's people with close relationships, a partner, family members, um, you know, if you think about family members who people are estranged from, a lot of times those people, you know, you might not have any contact, but they might also be people who are weighing heavily on your mind and who you think about frequently. And so the emotional distance is, is really complicated. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into um, distance relationships in a little bit, but I, you know, I'm thinking about this in context because a lot of us right now are going through some, uh, you know, I'll just speak for myself, enlightenment about how things, how we live our lives in distance with people through social media and different things like that and uh, abstracting relationships, you know, whether we are, whether the social media is creating our relationships and creating our concept of what they can be. Um, I think it's something that we need to address in a lot of ways as a society, but we'll get into that in a little bit. I, I do want to jump to my favorite section, which is overrated versus underrated. I'll throw a bunch of things at you, uh, movies, food places, books, um, and just uh, ask you simply whether you think they're over or underrated and why. Sounds good. Let's do it. So the first one is me and Ed's pizza, over or underrated? I'd say under. I, I still really like it. I know I feel like it's gotten some some backlash. Not everyone likes me and Ed's as much, but I'm still always happy anytime I'm eating a me and Ed's pizza. What do you like about me and Ed's pizza? I don't know. To be honest, it has been a while since I've I've had one, but... I don't know. I feel like it's got a good, I feel like the toppings are, are good. They got some good flavorful toppings and uh, I guess that's the main thing I remember. Mm, Probably yeah. been like seven it was, years. It was an adjustment for me. Um, I, I wasn't a fan, but became one over time. And it's always interesting. Uh, it's I've kind of made this my uh, thing that I ask everybody. And it's interesting to hear the range of opinions. A lot of people that come are not from here, but move here have an adjustment period, kind of like a gestation period with me and Ed's pizza. And then it eventually just uh, pushes its way through next one. Uh, the cosmos reboot with Neil deGrasse Tyson over underrated. Under underrated. I think I, I thought it, it did well. I mean, I think it's, it's really it hard. To, up. Yeah. It, it's hard to compete against Carl Sagan. Right. So I, I, you know, I don't know that it can can top the original, but I think it's good. You know, I, I watch it with my kids and it started to get them, you know, interested in in science and space. And and that's kind of one of the big goals. And so I was I was happy to see that, you know, and I'm happy it's out there with, you know, an update to the original. Um, that's just, you know, you always miss anytime Carl Sagan's talking and you can can go back and listen to that. Do you think Neil deGrasse Tyson is a good Carl Sagan heir to that kind of uh, science public education? Because he sometimes wanders into controversial areas and can can push in ways that I felt like Carl Sagan was maybe a little bit more diplomatic. I, I don't know. what What's your take? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with what you said there. I think, um, yeah, I, I think he's fairly good at it, but I think he is a bit more contentious. And there's just that that magic thing about Carl Sagan where he's just like, you know, turn. He saw the the poetry and and wonder and space exploration, and it just totally got that humanistic side of it, and and could put that into words better than anyone else. 
and I think I think with Neil deGrasse Tyson, you've got he he sort of he's good with the scale of things and like wow, this is impressive. But uh, I feel that's kind of more the perspective. This is impressive. This is interesting. But with Carl Sagan, he got across the, that sense of like this is this is wonderful. This is amazing, and and you took away that feeling from it. Mm, absolutely. All right. Next one. I was going to ask you about the Sea of Tranquility, but since you mentioned, it, I won't. And I'll ask you whether you think Station Eleven is over or underrated. I think uh, Station Eleven is probably probably fairly related. You know, it's got a great reputation. For me, it holds up to that reputation. You know, I think when it first came out, it had so much buzz that I I thought it was a little overrated when I read it, and then. I reread it last year or the year before after reading uh, her next book after that, The Glass Hotel, which mm-hmm. was not science fiction. It, it was basically about the the Bernie Madoff scandal. And, and I got really interested from that in the way that she kind of moves from chapter to chapter and scene to scene, which is she, she kind of jumps around, not exactly in time period, but she she'll jump into a different character and explore it from this unexplained, uh, this unexpected angle. And I thought it was a really interesting method of construction. And then when I reread station 11, I noticed that way more about how sophisticated her, her exit points and entry points into chapters are and how things interconnect. Uh, And so that upped my appreciation for it. And then I also, uh, did you watch the HBO miniseries of it? Um, Which, which I loved and I love the way it, it sort of expanded on some different storylines of from the novel and took a few things in different directions while still feeling mostly the same. So I feel like that after my appreciation for the book too, just that it's kind of living in these two different forms. Mm. Uh, next one is someone you mentioned again, but you didn't mention this book, um, which is one of my favorite books, uh, The Buried Giant, over underrated. Uh, underrated. I would I definitely say underrated on that. I within his genre, within his kind of like au revoir or whatever, or just in general? Both, I would okay. say. Uh yeah, it got it got a pretty mixed reception, if I'm remembering right, when it came out. It it didn't get critical adoration and stuff. And Kazuro Shiguro is is one of my two favorite writers. And, and um, you know, like Remains of the Day destroyed me and Never Let Me Go destroyed me. And I've been reading through through more of his books. And when I got to that one, I wasn't sure what to expect. And when I got to the end of it, I was just like really blown away by it. I think it's it's probably my third favorite after those those two. Um and I think it, you know, it has that power of an Ishiguro book that he has where he just kind of like develops plot in a way that that really like puts all this weight on his themes and he brings it to a head at the ending that has just a, a huge amount of emotional impact if if someone listening is an ishiguro virgin uh would you start with remains of the day or would you start somewhere else where would you start i started with remains of the day and i think i think that's a good starting point it's i think all of his books start out fairly slow you know remains of the day starts off with a lot of discussion about what makes a good butler and so you have yeah. to be prepared prepared for that uh which is i liked it, it he doesn't kind of a, a slightly comic sort of way where he's little... i think it'd be interesting to pair you know a lot of people watch downton abbey and reading that book after watching downton abbey and thinking about i don't know just the just the messaging around 
I mean, he's he's a British guy and kind of like I, I don't I don't know if Downton Abbey sometimes has this kind of like American perspective on the the class system yeah. and how they but that that like like you, that book just totally like just threw me. I mean, I was by the end of it, I was I, it's such a short book. And I, I don't know how Ishiguro does this consistently with these kind of seemingly different genres. I mean, Buried Giant is so much different than Remains of the Day, but it's just so tactfully done that I, yeah, it's when you're done with the book, you're like, is that it? Yeah. The, and never let me go to like it. I almost put it down about a third of the way through. Have you read that one? I have not read that one. No. You should read it. And if you don't know too much about what it's about, you should like avoid even like I'd say the back cover copy mm. because the the less you know about the underlying situation, the better and the more impact it has. And, and the first third of it is mostly just like a like a, a boarding school, English boarding school type novel where you've got these kids going through their their grades and kind of having having friendships and little dramas between them. And you kind of start to feel like you, there's a little bit of a sense that something is weird and you get, but you, it, I think a lot of readers, other people I've talked to have said, it, it just feels kind of like, okay, what's the point? What is this beyond your your typical boarding school type novel? And then part two starts like sink the hooks. And in part three, everything that that comes to pass is just totally devastating. Mm. Well, and I, yeah, I mean, that's the same with the remains of the day, it feels like, which is when you start it, you're like, why am I reading this, you know, a little bit? And then you, and then he just sucks you in, this butler sucks you in. Okay, let's continue. Yeah. Uh, next one, uh, Route 66, over underrated. Yeah, it, it Route 66 is really important in the novel, and it would probably make you think that I have a lot of Route 66 experience, but I don't. I don't know if I've ever driven along much of it, so I I can't say beyond kind of the, the historical ideas and the documentaries I watched. Uh, but let's go with with underrated. You know, who who doesn't love a good slice of of classic Americana? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting. Uh interesting places that you can discover if you i've only done kind of like the very end i guess you know kind of in arizona or whatever it's fun to be on a historical road and kind of see these places that are talked about all right next one and i hope i'm gonna say this right uh george ligati uh the composer oh yeah um let's go with i think we gotta go with underrated because I, I don't think most people know him or who he is if you can't uh, pronounce his name he's probably underrated <laughs> George, yeah i'm not sure on the first name georgie and, and yeah Ligeti, Ligeti, I, think I, think. Is, I don't know uh, I, I i tried i think i, I, I don't said, speak hungarian so i don't know <laughs> i think i said Ligeti for a long time and and then i got corrected but his work is so strange like it it sounds almost like infernal or demonic have you listened to any of his his stuff yes i i, I listened to the one that you've referenced before in the past but to be honest I, as a classical uh nut myself i i'm not as familiar as i probably should be yeah and i'm not super familiar i, I know from research for a story that that referenced him a lot and it's not something that I'm going to like sit around and, and put on to listen to while I do the house or anything like that. It's, yeah. it's not exactly enjoyable music, but it sounds, it, it sounds like 
wrong in just like the perfectly calibrated way like like it's intricate and there's all these kind of musical directions you expect it to go to to resolve you know to resolve what it's put before and it just like shifts those so instead just everything sounds kind of like chaotic and dissonant but in a very purposeful way so i i think it's an interesting thing to check out yeah and i i think a lot of people can feel that way about 20th century classical music it's kind of confusing and uh difficult to understand and a lot of people want to just have classical music almost like background like ambient noise yeah. And not like seriously listen, but I, 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 you know, if if this music is confusing to you, the book I would recommend is called "The Rest Is Noise" by Alex Ross, who's a is a longtime writer for the New Yorker, and he wrote a great book about the history of 20th century classical music that I think at least helped me to appreciate it. And even now, today, I will sometimes sit and listen to music and do nothing else, which is a foreign concept to a lot of people. Yeah. All right, ne- next one, uh, the movie Interstellar, over underrated. I think it's underrated. I think it got, I feel like it took a lot of heat and I thought it was pretty cool. You know, I think some aspects of it stray from hard science fiction, but a lot of it actually, actually gels pretty well with, with hard science. And I thought it was just kind of an interesting take and an interesting, intricate adventure through I don't know, through through interstellar travel and an interstellar mystery. And I, you know, I think there are parts of it that if you scrutinize them, they don't make a ton of sense, but I don't know. I thought it was up there with a lot of the classics of the sci-fi genre in terms of, you know, not, not everything has to make sense in a, a sci-fi movie or a sci-fi book. And I thought it, it had some great, really tense scenes. Like I've never seen uh, such a tense space station docking scene <laughs> uh, that one had me like on the edge of my seat and there were a lot of times there where you're like okay these people are really isolated out in space there are a lot of dangers and how they face those dangers i, I thought was well constructed yeah i mean i think christopher nolan is interesting in a lot of ways with what he does with film i mean i don't remember the name of that most recent one that he did with the with the time changing uh yeah, i saw it i saw it in theaters like double masked up in the middle of COVID. And I was like the only one in the movie. I sat yeah. by myself in a movie theater and watched it. And I just remember having my ears ringing because of, I guess he just decided to put guns right next to the microphones and just shoot them. <laughs> um, but I I do think he does, he bends stuff in ways that not a lot of filmmakers do. And he can get away with it because they're fun and action packed. Um, but he he definitely tests. Let's, uh, let's jump to food again though. Uh, Annex Kitchen, over underrated. I've only eaten there once, but I liked it a lot. I don't know. I mean, I think the the general perception is it's pretty good. That was my perception. So I, I'll have to cop out and say uh, appropriately rated it on that one. I think it's appropriately rated. If maybe a touch over overrated, just because it's one of the few places in town where you can have that kind of meal. Yeah, that's uh, true. Next one. Uh, this is close to home. The Martian. The Martian. The book or, uh, the, book or the movie. You, you decide. Let's say both because I thought they were... To me, they were pretty similar in quality. I would say, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of grasping here, but I, I guess I would say underrated. I, I guess, I think I'm saying underrated on most of these things. I, I try to be be charitable on, on everything <laughs> if I have to lean one way. Um, 
but I like the book a lot. I mean, I, I thought sometimes the, the humor in the book was maybe a little corny, uh, but mm-hmm. there just aren't that many books out there that are full of like fascinating engineering challenges. And so it was pretty fun to read. I think that's why, why me and a lot of people, you know, kind of flew through the book. Cause it's like, okay, how, how are you going to solve this immediate problem? And there's a lot of that immediate problem solving in the book that mostly, you know, sticks pretty well to what real, real issues would be in that kind of situation. So, so I think it's, it's fun. I'll, I'll say underrated because there just aren't that many books out there doing that same sort of thing. Okay. Next one is about your life as a writer. Uh, daily word counts. Are those over or underrated? For so me, shooting to write a thousand words a day or whatever it is. For me, they're overrated. Um, it works well for a lot of people. Um, my process, I think, is is kind of different from the one that's the norm and the one that's encouraged most among writers. And I don't, I don't think it's better or anything, but it just works for me. So punch a time clock as opposed to having a word count. Yeah, and I uh, actually, I'm really neither, and I do oh, okay. the thing that um, that everyone says not to do, which is like, you know, sit down and write when it works and when you've got the inspiration. Everyone says, you know, don't don't wait for inspiration to write or your novel write never write. But for me to make good progress on, on something, I have to feel like I've got some aspects of what I'm going into figured out in a way that I really like. So. I tend to, you know, get energy on a project and try and maintain that energy uh, in order to keep keep wanting to sit down and working things out in the way that I feel like they should from the start. Um, and uh, and there is a big danger in that of not just never writing then because it, it, it's hard to wait for the inspiration. Uh, so you got to be really honest with yourself about like actually actively working on developing the the idea that you're working on and making sure you're thinking about it every day and trying to to explore it every day even if you can't sit down and write every day and that kind of started when when my kids were babies and there wasn't time to sit down every day and write there was like half an hour a week maybe that I could squeeze into writing and so I had to just move a lot of my development off the page and into my head, into a notes app on my phone where I can can lay things out and feel like, okay, this is ready to go. So when I can squeeze in a little time, it goes well. Mm. So kind of on that, uh, I don't have this one written in my notes, but on that uh, topic, uh, do you think outlining, uh, given this was your first novel, you kind of had to develop some kind of practices. Do you think outlining is over or underrated? Uh, I'll go with overrated on this one uh, again that's more personal taste than what i think works for everyone i i don't think i can work with a full outline where i i kind of mathematically worked out how everything's going to go in advance i feel like it's kind of a process of discovery as i go but what i tend to do is have a, a loose outline where or an idea of where things are headed but not in a way where I know all the details. So I'll start to get a feeling like, okay, part one is going to end here. Here's what needs to happen then. And it'll start going in this direction. And it's not until I get closer to the end of part one that I might start thinking, okay, part two is going to go in this direction. And here's some of the details I'm going to fill in. So I usually have notes on what's going to happen, but it's they're they're looser and more hypothetical than an outline. 
I mean, that's kind of what Matt Bell says in that book uh, about writing novels, right? Is that like, if you have something that's really strict with yourself, you're limiting your creative creative process in some ways. And, you know, you kind of get to know characters that the more you write about them and then they, you kind of, they start to speak for themselves in some way. Yeah. You you find some surprises and then the surprises kind of guide the direction of where things can go in the future. And so I don't want, so I feel like something too strict would keep me from following the directions that those surprises head in. Okay. Two more on this section. Uh, the work of Richard Feynman, his popular work. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I'll have to go with an NA on this one because I haven't uh, read or listened to any of his work. Uh, and I know he's one of a, you know, he's a really good science educator. I've, you know, I've always seen his books in the library and stuff. Um, but I, I never checked him out in particular. So, um, but that makes me feel like now I need to. Next one, uh, the Foundation series by Asimov, over underrated. Haven't read those either. Um, okay. So, so yeah, I can't comment on those. And I, I feel a little bit coming into the sci-fi genre as a little bit of an outsider or a tourist or at least a non-expert. You know, I've been trying to to read more. I have read a fair amount of sci-fi, but I I don't have that encyclopedic knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like I I feel like I. I know about or can comment on a lot of literary work from yeah. the contemporary age and, and going back a couple centuries. Sci-fi, it's a little more scattershot. Okay, last one then. Arrival, the Ted Chang story. I would say underrated, just because for me, that's that's a favorite story and it's a favorite movie. And I just love it. I mean, I think the there there's a couple concepts in there that get tied together in a way that I think is probably the most mind-blowing conceptual idea in you know one of the most mind-blowing ones that I've I've ever read and I think it's and then it's brought home on this kind of really emotional story about a, a parent who's lost a child um so so I love him I watched Arrival I think three times and I've cried every time so um so that one can't be highly rated enough for me yeah well, and I think you should, everyone should pick up a story. Is it stories of your lives and others? Is that yeah. what the collection is? Yeah. Pick up that collection now or, or sooner than now. Yeah. I'm just realizing uh, that should have been my answer when you asked earlier about um, books that deal with time in an interesting way. Cause that's, that's like the go-to there. And I blanked on yeah. it. Um, and it's crazy to me that he's has a day job, you know, yeah. that, that blows <laughs> my mind, but that's a whole different story. Let's get into now talking a little bit. Uh, before we close up with book recommendations about uh, Crystal and Rick's relationship, as that is kind of the the central crux of the story. Have you been in a long distance relationship before? Not for for a limited amount of time. Uh, when when my wife and I were dating, I moved back to Boston for grad school and she was finishing up nursing school. And um, and so she couldn't couldn't leave yet. So I think it was eight or nine months or so that I was there before before she could move out. And, you know, we do some visits to see each other, but it was a lot of, you know, phone calls, trying to talk every day uh, and and that sort of thing. And it's it's hard, you know, it's not fun. Yeah. What do you think makes long distance relationships unique? I mean, I definitely remember not even it's not, you know, it can it can be about distance in some ways, but it also can be about the ability to see someone within the day. I mean, I remember I, in high school, I had 
a girlfriend that went to a different high school and that felt like she was living on Mars to me. And so I just remember long nights of, and I don't know if you remember this, you know, just like having the, the, you know, either the phone that you moved into your room or the cordless phone and you'd go off and hide and have yeah. these long conversations for hours. Wall, that is, yeah. Exactly. So what, what do you think makes long distance relationships unique within the I, context of the story? You know, I think you, well, in the context of real life, I think it amplifies the, just naturally the longing of to be with someone. You can talk to someone every day and, and you get that real intimacy from like an extended phone call. There's something, something kind of special about that. So you, you get this, I think you in, in certain ways get to deepen the intimacy of your emotional relationship. Uh, at the same time, you're just like turbocharging all the longing. You, you, you miss someone, you, you know, you want to see them, you know, naturally you want to see someone every day. And then if you're going weeks without seeing them and you're talking with them and wishing you were there, it's just like, you know, it's, it's, it's the connection of being together with all the loneliness of being apart. And I think that's kind of the same thing that the book is going for when, when Rick and, and Crystal end up in a long distance relationship is, is that, you know, especially from Rick's perspective and he's the narrator, he's just like, full of longing. He doesn't want to be anywhere but Crystal's side. And he can't be, and she's not even really talking on the phone with him. They're sending letters. And so it's this like back and forth communication. And his whole life is about waiting to hear from her and wishing he could be closer with her. And so, uh, and that's, that's kind of what I wanted to be doing with the novel. There's, you know, having Mars be so close, but so distant, we can't get him to talk to us. And Rick, same thing. Crystal is, you know, she she's across the country. She's a, you know, probably a six hour plane ride away. And it's just like, almost like she's disappeared from the face of the earth for him. Hmm. What are the upsides of a long distance relationship? In the book? I guess either. I mean, because we tend to focus on what you were talking about is this longing, which is we tend to focus on uh, kind of the, I don't want to say negative experiences, but some of the obstacles and hardships. Are there upsides to long distance relationships, either in life or in the context of your book? I mean, I think in life, I think one thing is that it's a good test. You know, like it's it's a lot of work to maintain a long distance relationship. And you see in a lot of them that someone says, you know, like, okay, this, I, I don't want to keep putting in this work. This is not, it's not something I'm going to, keep going. It would be easier to date someone here. I can find someone here. And so it can be kind of a test of, uh, you know, are both people fully checked in, fully committed, even when it's hard. And um, naturally that's kind of both how, how it's good and how it's bad. Uh, it can stretch a relationship to its breaking point, but it can also help you find out when a relationship doesn't have a breaking point in the book, you know, that's without out getting too much into the details of the plot that should be discovered. I think that's kind of how things are for Rick. And I think, I think Rick and Crystal both figure out how committed they are to that relationship and how important it is in their, in their lives, you know, when their relationship is stretched apart. Um, and I guess it's probably not too much to say, you know, Chris, it's in the, it's in the cover copy. So I can say Crystal kind of disappears for a lot of the book 
And, and it's really a question for Rick whether or not he's going to stay attached to her, whether or not he's going to keep pining after her and searching for her. Uh, and there are some, some times in the book where, where he may not, but he has to kind of hit that ultimate break point of, of saying like, okay, am I going to stick with having my life be about Crystal or am I going to move on? So it's a, it's a little bit too, because I'm going to talk for a second about Rick and Crystal's relationship and then Crystal's relationship with Mars. It's kind of like, how do you, how do you maintain a relationship with intermittent uh, connection? And would you say that um, the triangle of Crystal, Rick, and Mars is a love triangle in some ways? Yeah, I think so. Uh, that's a good good way of describing it. And Rick's relation to Crystal, where he she's kind of distant from him and he's longing after her and questing after her, is exactly what she's doing to Mars. You know, he she is longing to to solve any equation that Mars puts out there, and that's her focus more than anything else. And in the same way, you even have Rick as he's questing after Crystal, he's basically ignoring and looking past a lot of his other friends in the book and treats them kind of poorly in the same way that Crystal treats him. So you've got a lot of people, you know, fixated on one point, one person, one planet, one quest, and and getting tunnel vision and, and losing sight of a lot of what else is around them. Mm. Let's close by talking about book recommendations. We've already done tons of them. Um, hopefully everyone has already put uh, Remains of the Day in their Amazon cart or whatever. Uh, but what are some books that we haven't mentioned that you'd recommend to the audience? Were they important or influential with this book or just important in general in your life? There was a book that uh, helped inspire the initial idea for this one called Equilateral by Ken Kalfas. Uh, and it's about this um, late 19th century astronomer trying to carve an equilateral triangle into the desert to signal Mars. And that was kind of the, the starting point for this one. In that book, there's no, uh, there's, Mars doesn't turn out to actually be inhabited. He doesn't get an answer, but it's more about like this guy's imperial folly of trying to to make this giant signal to Mars during the colonial era. Uh, so that's a very good, very smart book. Um, another one that I think of in connection with this is a book called Light from Other Stars by Erica Swyler. Uh, and it's the closest match I have genre-wise to what the book's doing and the way it's kind of using speculative fiction to tell an emotionally centered story. Uh, that one's about basically a, a, a father who's trying to create an entropy machine that can speed up or slow down time basically so that he can um, stretch out his his the time of his daughter's childhood, but then it turns into like an industrial entropy accident sort of thing. Um, uh, so that that's a novel that I love. Uh, we mentioned Ted Chang; both his story collections are excellent. Um, and we're past the October reading season, but there's a, a book card called Saturnalia out from this year that I loved, and it um, it's about this kind of like arcane party with in secret societies in Philadelphia uh, and it's got some got some occult monsters in it and stuff like that so that, that was a really good book uh what else I, I've got a uh, my friend in town another Fresno writer Talia Lakshmi Kalui has a short story collection out called what we fed to the manticore that's all narrated from animal animal perspectives and it's about 
human impacts on animal populations, climate impacts on animal populations. It's a really, really great, really unique short, short story collection. And let me squeeze in one more. Another favorite of the year has been a book called uh, Sweet, Soft, Plenty Rhythm by Laura Worrell. Uh, and that's a story about five women who have been involved in some way with a jazz musician named Circus Palmer, one of whom is his daughter uh, and who's who's kind of navigating her relationship with Circus and other women who have had like affairs with him or relationships with him. Uh, and it's this really interesting sort of jazzy symphonic portrait of less of of the guy himself than of the constellation that of people who have centered themselves around him. Mm. So to close, uh, obviously everyone should go buy your book right now and start reading, but where can people find more about what you're up to and then what's next on the docket for you? You can find me on online. I'm on Twitter at Ethan Chitanye uh, and on Instagram at Ethan Chitanye. Those are the main places. Uh, you know, as long as as long as Twitter stays alive uh, or, you know, stays tolerable, uh, which we'll see. And so but basically, you can find me there. My website is ethanchitanye.com and you can uh, it's got a an email form. So if anyone wants to reach out, you can send send an email to me through that. And and that's most of it up to next. I'm I'm just kind of the the promotional stuff for this book is starting to wane a bit so i'm trying to think about next projects and i i usually have a few ideas in mind at any time and i kind of have to have to let them try and see which one takes the lead which one feels most interesting or most complete so that's kind of where i am with projects right now is is letting two ideas duke it out for which one's going to get the effort i appreciate you doing this and um please go read the book it's a fascinating concept book. It's a fascinating emotional story. And most of us have been in relationships where we didn't feel like both parties were on the same level. And so I, I, I think it's a book that we can all relate to. So I really appreciate you taking the time with me. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I love the podcast and I'm excited to be on it. Fresno's back. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.